0: well good morning again we're going to be in acts chapter 17 if you'll take your bible and look at acts chapter 17. Uh, alicia was right i have been in depression for a couple of weeks but uh, baseball will do it to you but i often remember what tom hanks said wisely enough and that was what there is no crying in baseball but, but there's plenty of crying in life, and uh, we know that, so anyway. Um, I would like to mention before I forget two things. We are going to have communion after the sermon this morning. And also, today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And so churches around the country and maybe around the world are praying for the persecuted. And it's a great day to to remember them, uh, those brothers and sisters we have, our family who are around the world in different places, uh, Nigeria is uh, at the forefront of thinking, but many other countries are facing it as well. And uh, so I want to pray as I start, not only for the message this morning, but for our brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact we can assemble today. We think about our election coming up, and we remember our system of government. And we remember the fact that we are given a vote uh, regarding the direction of our communities and our country. and, And that's a privilege that people fought for and gave their lives for. We remember that you have given us many blessings as a country. Uh, Many of them are because we are free, but really they all come from you and your gracious hand upon our country has been amazing, even if we have not realized it as a people. But today I wanna turn my heart toward those who are being persecuted around the world. They are our brothers and sisters and uh, many of them are in places where there is great pressure on them that we would never wanna tolerate ourselves, but yet they have to live with it every day. And I think about the fact that there are people that I've met and uh, visited that had to leave their homes in an instant because of the persecution. And I think about what's happening in Nigeria where that and in other places around the world, um, sudden outbreaks can happen at any point in time. It's a life of risk, it's a life of danger, but it's also a life of faith. I pray that you will uh, protect your body there in Nigeria and these other places, and I pray that you will bring a sense of conviction upon those who are doing the persecution and i pray that in some magical to us but mysterious and sovereign way to you that you will bring revival among the persecutors and you are able to do that so we don't pray for that father even as we pray for the protection and the nurture of our brothers and sisters help us to not forget them and help us to not be so wrapped up in our lives here that we forget that there are those suffering around the world So as Hebrews uh, tells us to do, we remember our brothers and sisters in prison and the ones who are not in prison but are still being persecuted, and we pray for your strength and provision upon them in Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 17, our passage today, I am taking a risk, I will tell you right up front, where I was going to go over the passage and then share a few thoughts about witnessing, but I'm going to flip it today, and we'll see what Paul does in the passage after we get into what we're gonna get into. Last week we began a two-parter on the marketplace of ideas and you might remember that uh, we talked about that one as the middle space marketplace and middle space being that space where we as believers go into and unbelievers go into and we kind of meet in the middle. So uh, those are places we often find ourselves whether it's a school or a grocery store or a ball field, I mean wherever it is. Well, today I'm gonna call it Middle Space Messaging, and I wanna talk about how do we reach those in middle space, especially considering the changes in our culture. Next week, uh, I'm excited about this passage. Uh, You'll see some things there I bet you've never seen before about the network of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 18. That'll be next week. But for today, I wanna show the map again. Remember, Paul is in Athens, Greece at this time, in ancient Athens, and he has gone there Uh, as he has moved along at the direction of God down through Macedonia, down into Achaia, Greece. And now he's in Athens, and he's been meeting with people and talking to them. And now he has a chance to speak to a very esteemed group called the Areopagus, which is a council that met on Mars Hill, Ares, Mars, the same thing basically. And so he is meeting in front of this Athenian council, and he is sharing what he's been saying in the community that has caused kind of an uproar. And there will be a mixture of people in this community as he shares. And it will be interesting to see the result by the time we finish the message today, to see the result that Paul gets because it may be his least successful presentation. So I want to share a few thoughts about presenting the gospel in a world that does not receive Jesus Christ and today is, uh, has changed in our culture and I want to share a few thoughts about that, and then let's take a look at Paul's message and see what he did. So I'm going to talk to you for a moment. I'm going to show you this uh, to get you thinking about this—the this sphere of salvation. We are concerned about the soul of a person who hears. Now, sometimes an unbeliever will come into our church, and we certainly want to hear the, them to hear the gospel. We're always standing on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and sometimes we go through a more thoroughgoing gospel presentation. But we never want to be far from a gospel presentation, do we? So when we speak about salvation, we are speaking, and that person, like Jesus says, has a soil. In the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils, there are different kinds of soils, and the Word of God will hit that soil and something will happen. But we have to remember also that in the realm of salvation for an individual, we have the sovereign God himself, the one who ordains. He is the one who ordains his relationship with mankind and with specific individuals. We also have the son, he is the one who sacrificed, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for salvation. We have the spirit, the one who enlightens and enables the human heart to quicken and to understand the message and then to be able to respond to it. Now, you've noticed by now, yes, I've alliterated, I'm a seminary grad and it's a disease I can never get away from. And since we're alliterating, why don't we throw one more in? And this is you, the steward, the one who speaks. God has ordained it to where we humans are a part of his plan. He brings us into it and says, I want you to participate with me. I want you to cooperate with me, not in the Pelagian sense, but in the sense of I want you to be a part of my work. Because, yes, I could say directly to all these humans, but I'm engaging you in it to be able to share the gospel. And that's all of us. I'm going to assume that we have a room full of believers this morning, I think that's a fair assumption. And so I'm saying to all of us, God has called you into the position of being steward. And it's not just those who have the gift of evangelism, although it's amazing. I had a seminary professor at Dallas who, he would go and speak in a church and he would have lunch with the deacons uh, you know, beforehand and, and he would lead deacons to Christ, which is an interesting thought, isn't it? Uh, I don't think we have to lead our elders to Christ. I think they've already gotten there, but just imagine church leadership coming to Christ, and you would think, well, they would have before, but you and I both know that's not always the case. But God has involved us. He's invited us to participate in that process. And so it's not just one. It's all of these working together, and working together in a way that only God can understand. Only God can read the human heart, And only God really knows how all of this works together, right? Are we good with this? That's just the way it is. But don't think for a moment it's only what God does because he clearly invited us in to the show, if you will. Now, the tone of the steward, we're going to see with with Paul. We saw last week, actually, where Paul was in Athens and he saw the idols everywhere. They had an idol to everything. They had all sorts of different idols. Forms. some of them were obscene some of them were not but he looked at all of those especially in the marketplace paul got angry in the greek it says he got very angry inside like he was livid with what he saw so how did he then respond to them because he could have brought fire and brimstone down on their heads and we'll see in a little bit how he did that but anyway the tone of the steward first of all when you see the sin around you in the world there's anger right and Without going into a lot of detail about this, I think we know that Tuesday, there's going to be a lot of anger expressed. Because Tuesday is what? Election day. Now, we as a church can't endorse or, or denigrate a candidate, but I know that there's just a lot of anger. I see it on social media and other places. Anger in all directions. And we get angry about things, and when we do that, it gives us a tone, and that tone can be destructive. Even though we might be right, It's the tone that we use to come across, and it's that way in evangelism. So that's important. The other side of it is some can come across in evangelism with acceptance. So you might be angry at the unbeliever's sin, and you might want to just hit them with fire and brimstone. The other side I've seen plenty of that's unfortunate is we see just an acceptance. Like you see a person's sin, you see their life, and you say, it's okay, God understands, everything's fine. And I remember working with uh, students, some of whom came from, churches that more believe that way and you talk about fearing God and they are like well God doesn't want you to fear him he wants you to reverence him but not fear him and it's like okay both of those words in the English come from the Greek word phabos which means to fear and I do believe God wants fear you can call it healthy fear you can gussy it up all you want but God wants us to look at him as the sovereign who has our eternal destiny in his hand I don't know about you but there's times that I'm afraid of what God can do to me I don't live in it, but I think that's just realistic. And yes, it becomes reverence, but I think it's more than that. And if I look at a person and say, well, everything you're doing is fine, God's happy with all you're doing, then I'm leading that person down the wrong path, right? And so somewhere in the middle is a tone that we need to approach an unbeliever with, and I think that tone would be this, grace and truth. That we have grace, we treat that person with grace, but we also give them the truth. And if I don't give you the truth, then I am misleading you for eternity, right? So, we have to use grace and truth. Uh, I ran across this, I want to share with you, it's called the Gray Matrix and the graymatrix.org uh, is an interesting website, of, it's from the UK and, and they're thinking about how to, how to reach the world in middle space, what I would say. And it's really interesting. They would say, you can be aware, you can be unaware, you can be open, you can be closed. You watch for this when we talk about Paul and the Athenians. Were they open? Were they closed? Were they aware of the truth or were they ignorant? Are they unaware? Now, in American culture, I think one of the challenges we face is that a lot of people are aware of the basic gospel. Maybe not, but a lot of them are. Some people are not. But you've got those extremes, and some people have a closed heart to God, and some people have an open heart to God. So what we're going to see in, uh, when we look at uh, the book of uh, Acts in a moment is, it's sorry for the um, animation, I didn't get that off of there, but there you have some who are unaware, and they are closed. Now, let me ask you, do you know anywhere anyone like that, that does not know the gospel, what is is also closed, even if you tried to share it with them. you know anybody like that? What do you do then? Well, my first avenue would be prayer. There are those, though, who are aware of the gospel, and they are open to it, and what they may need is for someone to come along and say, hey, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ and explain it to them and then they're right there. Have you ever seen anyone like that? Were any of you like that? Very possible. But we have an interesting society now, it's called postmodern by description, but in our postmodern society, I've been been reading uh, a lot about this in preparation. In our postmodern world, there's kind of the thinking there is no such thing as truth, right? So that's hard when you're trying to share the gospel with someone and say this is the truth and they don't necessarily acknowledge the truth. So there've been some interesting things written. Uh, This week I've been looking at a couple of books. One is called Evangelism in a Skeptical World, the foreword by the great uh, academic Donald Carson. And uh, this book by Sam Chan is really, really, really interesting and it's extremely helpful. And uh, so when you have a world that has moved away from modernism and truth to postmodernism and not necessarily accepting absolute truth. How do you reach that culture? Interesting what he says, and I'm just going to read a couple of things here. In general, we should use more stories in our evangelism. In modernity, people preferred hearing propositional data, give me the facts. But in post-modernity, people prefer hearing stories. Show me what this looks like. Now, what does that mean is critically important. If you're going to show someone what it looks like, that means the burden is on you to live a life of testimony to where you're actually living out the truth. Because what they don't want to hear is like, this is the gospel, but I don't live it. Interesting thing. I I like this a lot. I don't know how you'll receive it, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. The underlying assumption today is we need intellectual people in ministry. Such people are gifted with logic, the sciences, and argumentation. But we also need to encourage people from the creative arts into preaching, teaching, and evangelism ministries. Why do I use the slides? Because we're a visual postmodern age, and people like to see things like that. And Timothy Keller says in a book I'm going to show you in a second, The instant you present the gospel, you have chosen to be contextual, historical, and particular. In other words, you are sensitive to a person's context, where they come from, and what might speak to them in their context. So Chan talks about that. He says, if we understand another person's culture, we have a better chance of being understood. And I think that's really true. I mean, that's just common sense. And we need to think about that. And I wanna share a couple of things he said. Um, I'll move on to this slide. While the most important question for a modern is, is it true? For postmoderns, what matters is, is it real in our lives? Which means a postmodern person is less likely to be persuaded by our clever arguments, but they might be persuaded by our life story. Which would mean, again, your life would have to be consistent enough to be a testimony for Jesus Christ. Postmoderns care whether we are living consistently and coherently with our beliefs. They want to know do we walk the walk as well as talk the talk? Evangelism shifts then from propositions we assert to hospitality we practice. You know, something you don't ever hear people say, but they ought to, is you know, we talk about sharing a gospel, there's a word we use for it. What is that word? One of the words is witnessing, right? What does witnessing mean when you think about what it means? It means I am going to testify to something I've seen. I am a witness. This morning coming to church, we came across a fairly significant accident at Briargate Parkway and Voyager, and all the uh, rescue people were coming up and everything else, and I thought, I didn't see the accident happen, but if I had, I would have been a witness to the accident. I would have seen it. And so, I want you to just think about the fact it's not just giving a list of facts. It's witnessing, testifying to what you've seen in your life that God has done. Now, I am in no way trying to denigrate the truth of Scripture, but I'm just saying I think that we've had a limited view of just how extensive the Scripture is. And he said, and we talked about this before, that I want to share this with you. We should also emphasize sin differently. What does that mean? He said, given that the Western world is moving away from the guilt model of sin, since people no longer believe in absolutes, he suggests we should emphasize what? Shame when we talk about sin. He said, I've been using the language of shame. We have shamed God, we have not been honoring God, and the room is silent. All eyes are on me. They get it, it's personal. And so I think that's really important. People have shame. And there are a lot of people who don't want to hear about sin. They may not even believe it's wrong because, after all, I have the right to do what I want to do with my life. But when you talk about shame, you're connecting with where they've been from and what they've done. And we have to ask ourselves today, you look at it. We go into Acts 17. Does Paul speak anything to his culture as he speaks to the Athenians? Does he talk to them at all? So Timothy Keller has written a pretty cool book, and I, I, I was looking through it, and I was thinking, man, he took a long time writing that. It's called Center Church, about reaching the city. And it, it's really awesome, and he had an interesting thing in there I thought was fascinating, which is that there was a missionary Presbyterian who was trying to reach prostitutes in Korea, and I was having a really difficult time connecting with them. And so what the missionary started doing was changing what he said because he realized that they were wrestling with shame. And they were convinced they could not be worthy. And this, to me, was so clever because I've ministered many years in a culture where, like I shared with the Sunday school class, if you dared mention the word Calvinism, they try to cast a demon out of you. And I have... I would say, fairly strong views about God doing the work of salvation, including divine election. This missionary realized that God's sovereignty was the ticket. And he started sharing with the women, God is our king. And God is electing you. In other words, he is choosing you. So your worthiness does not come from yourself and your sinful, shameful life. Your worthiness comes from the fact that the king loves you so much that he has chosen you. Now, a lot of times we hear the slam on quote-unquote Calvinism, pick your word, reform, whatever, that uh, they don't believe in evangelism because they believe God does all of it, which that's a slam, it's not true. But I would like to hear more compelling arguments related to God's choice in evangelism. And that's what we see here. What if you knew that you weren't worthy of being saved, but that the king chose you nonetheless? How would that affect how you view yourself? And how would that affect how you respond? So that was just one of the stories in, uh, in Keller's book, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating. So today, we have a society where we don't necessarily even acknowledge that there's a God. You know, when we were growing up as kids, you know, for me, back in the 1800s, you know, the Bible was respected. People just knew they didn't live it, but they respected it. Nowadays, they may not know about it, and they may not think it has any binding authority. So that's the world we're in. So today, when you ask people, most people do believe in a God. I think the last statistics I saw were somewhere in the neighborhood of 84%. But even then, people are not clear so is there a God some people say yes some people think God has expectations some people think God has no expectations you can live the life you want to live and God's happy either way which is interesting to square with scripture isn't it but I say to people if God has expectations and he's God by definition wouldn't you want to know what those are considering the stakes at hand the people that say maybe, some people will say, I don't know. What do we call that? If you say, I don't know if there's a God. Yeah, they're kind of agnostic. Agnostic means no knowledge in the Greek, but basically say, like, I don't have enough knowledge to know, I just don't know. Some people would say, I don't care. And some people will say, I wish I knew. And if you have somebody say that, then yes, you better talk to them. And then there are those who say, no, there's not a God, and this is what they will also say, so don't bother me with it. What do you do for that person? You pray. Now, the next question is, is there an afterlife? This really gets people thinking. It's a good question to ask. Do you think there's an afterlife or not? I'm curious. You know, you could ask. Some people say, yes, an afterlife with no requirements. Some people would say, yes, an afterlife with requirements. Now, I'd perk up on that one and want to know what are the requirements. Some people say, maybe, I don't know. I don't care. Some would say, I wish I knew. Our society has all of these, and when you go into middle space, you need to think about the person you're talking to, where they come from, because they're going to come from somewhere in here. And then those who say no will also say So don't bother me with it, and you'll pray for them. So that's what I wanted to share with you in advance, because I want you to think about how does Paul relate to the culture that he's got with the Athenians, and if you look with me in Acts chapter 17, verse 22, let's take a look at it, and let's just see what he says. Paul, the guy who right now is pretty angry with all the idolatry he sees, how does he come across What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage through without comment, and then I'm going to go back and and draw out a few things. So Acts chapter 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine is being beings like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent, all people, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And that's it. It's over. Did you notice where they cut him off? when he started talking about the resurrection. Now Paul was angry about their idols, but he doesn't show it here. That's the beautiful thing. He comes across with grace and truth and it's a brilliant sermon. And I know the Lord was leading him, but I marvel at the sermons in the book of Acts because it's like, man, they really, I don't know if they thought it through or if God just gave it to him immediately, but it was clever and I see that with Paul. What's the first thing you see Paul do? He addresses the men of Athens. But what do you see him say? He connects with them culturally because he draws their attention to something in their world. And he doesn't, at this point, make fun of it. He just acknowledges it, and he's building a relationship with them. So he makes the point, I perceive in every way you are very religious. Now You know, he could have put it a different way. We might have said, I perceive you're a bunch of hellbound pagans. But he doesn't say that. He just says you're very religious. It kind of means superstitious as well, but probably at this point in time, he's not doing it as an insult, it's just more an observation. And they're probably like, yes, yes, you're right, we are, we are very religious, yes. And he explains, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, And what he doesn't say is, I saw them everywhere, because you have them all over the place. I found also an altar with this inscription. So what does he do here? He's very specific. He gives a specific illustration. I've seen this, and it said, to the unknown God. And they're probably thinking, yes, yes, yes. Uh, We have a couple of blocks away, that altar to the unknown God. Yes, yes, yes. So he's connecting with them. But now he's going to start to make his point. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Basically, he's shifting from polytheism, from many gods, many idols, many altars, to there is one God. And let me explain to you what's going on. So this is where he starts to shift and get to him, The God, the individual one God who made the world and everything in it, Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I thought uh, Tip Keller in his book that I showed you did a good job on this. It's like you have argument A and B, and he's kind of shifting here, and he's pointing out the inconsistency of their argument because what do they believe? There's an unknown God. There's idols. Where do the idols come from? We make them. We craft them. We take wood, we carve it, we take metal, we mold it. We make it ourselves. And he's basically saying to them, you guys who pride yourselves on being the smartest people on the planet at this time, this is Athens, Greece, in the ancient world, they are the smartest. You guys have this giant logical inconsistency in your culture because you're saying you can make the idol, And yet, why would you worship something you make? That would be, like me, figuring out how to get some rubber and twine or whatever they use and forming a baseball and putting a leather cover on it and stitching it and then worshiping it. Oh, great, baseball, I worship you. That's exactly what they were doing. How can you worship something you've made? And so there's a logical disconnect, and he points it out. And so at this point in time, they should be thinking a little bit. And then he goes on, and there's an interesting tweak here on them. In several ways, he's going to tweak them, but it's subtle. He made from one man from every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Well, this is an attack on their pride because they believe they are the greatest nations. They could care less about all the other nations. But he's saying there was one man God made. He did not come from your culture, and there are other nations that he is reaching to live on all the face of the earth, which I think that's interesting. And then boy, would I love to have more information about what he says next, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And I'm just gonna say as an aside, this is an aside. This is not from the passage directly, it's just a thought. Have you ever thought about this with election day coming up? Has God allotted boundaries and allotted a period of time for the United States? And if that's the case, what does it mean? What does that mean for us? And again, I will not get into politics, that would not be appropriate, but I will say that it's very easy for us, even in the knowledge of that, to make an idol out of our country and out of our system. So i would encourage all of us as we vote vote the right way that you feel you should vote vote based on the beliefs you have but never ever pretend that the united states of america is the be-all end-all in the plan of god because that would be idolatry am i right that's a tough thing to say And somehow, we just don't know how, but somehow in their eras, their periods, their boundaries, even I think geographically, God has ordained the nations. What does that mean for the U.S.? I have no idea. I don't know what that means for the future. But somehow, in his sovereign way, God is behind the scenes while he's in the scene ordaining the nations. And I think that's amazing. And he goes on to say, and this is, you know, tweaking their pride because, again, they think they're the greatest. And and he's saying, no, you actually came from someone else. Verse 27, that the nations should seek God and perhaps find their way toward him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God has a plan. God is at work. And it's ironic that you Athenians who are so smart are so ignorant about what God has been doing. Tweak. And then he uses, notice what he does here. He uses the images and the poetry of their culture. The first quote is probably from Ep- Epimenides, in him we live and move and have our being. The second one is from Eratus, the poet Eretus, where we indeed are his offspring. This would be like me coming in to a presentation to you and citing things from the Lord of the Rings. Or even putting Minas Tirith on a map because it's a point of connection. That was for our teenagers. So Paul gets them thinking about things they can relate to, their culture. And so now he's going to go further in a point, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. How can you make a God? An image formed by the art and imagination of man. How can a God come from stone? So here's another tweak, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. You smart Athenians, you've been ignorant. He doesn't directly say it, but he sure makes them think it. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That day will come. God has determined the boundaries of the nations. He has determined... The time periods of the nations, and I will take this literally, he has fixed the day when God will judge, Jesus Christ will judge. That day is coming. And by the way, since this is the day where we pray for the persecuted, have you ever thought about why Revelation is what it is? Those people were being persecuted, and what, is Paul, or Paul, what does John do at the end of Revelation? He talks about the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, he's saying, it's rough now, but the day of glory will come. Or as the old preacher used to say, it's Friday, but what? Sunday's coming. Hang in there. And Paul's message to the Athenians is, it's Saturday, and Sunday's coming, and don't miss it. Because right now, honestly, you don't have a clue. And there will be judgment by a man whom he has appointed And again, honestly, we see the sovereignty of God. If I see anything today in everything we've done, it's the sovereignty of God. Now, how many of these people have been called to salvation? I have no clue. That is God's business, not mine. And God does not tell me. He just says, go out and share. But they stop Paul now. Because, he says... By a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. And Paul talks about the res- resurrection, and you notice in verse 32, the timing here, the sequence, the timing. When they heard of the resurrection, some mocked. That word means to mock, to sneer, to rejection. First Cor- uh, Corinthians 1 says that the gospel is folly to the Gentile mind, and you can see that in social media if you look very quickly. And so some people sneered at Paul, and then we have others saying, we will hear you again about this. We would like to know more. We wish we knew. And so Paul had to leave, and he leaves. Now, this is not one of those passages in Acts where thousands of people came to the Lord that day. But I want you to think about the kind of soil that he was dealing with, and it was tough. And some did join this is an interesting uh, thing I'd like to share with you about the Greeks and resurrection. The Greeks believed either in a complete extinction of body or soul, maybe in an afterlife in Hades, or in the limited immortality of the soul as opposed to eternal immortality. For example, Pliny the Elder, speaking of views that discuss some type of life after death, says that these are fictions of childish absurdity and belong to a mortality greedy for life unceasing. So when Paul gives this gospel, some of them are saying this is childish and it's stupid. We do not want to receive it at all. Plenty goes on to say a plague on this mad idea that life is renewed by death. It is a sweet but naive view. We're no different than the animals. We have life and breath, and when we die, that's it. There's no immortality. The one thing the Greeks all believed was that there was no resurrection of the body. There was no eternal life for the body. The soul maybe would be resurrected for a little while, but basically that's it. And that was the group Paul was talking to. So I want you to think about in evangelism, you may go to a place where the soil is hard and unreceptive. Missionaries feel that way when they go to a place that's not been evangelized, and it's just kind of difficult to uh, regard their work as successful or not based on the numbers that come to Christ because it takes time. But still, Paul connected with his culture, and he gave the true gospel, and he did it winsomely, and he gave them the opportunity, and he left the rest of it up to God. So as you go into middle space, what I would ask you to consider is what is the culture of the person you're talking to? How would they view the afterlife? How would they view God? How can you connect with that person? How can you get them to think about that? And don't forget, what if that person is burdened by shame? And if you say to them, you know, you're a sinner, and they say, I don't believe in sin, is the door totally closed? No, because they're shamed about something. And if you could tap into that, you might have an opportunity to show the magnificent grace of God who takes away not only our sin, but our shame as well. What a beautiful thing. God is a God. God is a God of redemption in ways we don't even begin to understand. It's a deep well we can never get to the bottom of, God's love. Isn't that wonderful? And that's the God who has given us the privilege of sharing his truth. Now this morning we're going to have communion. Uh, I'm going to pray. The worship team will come up and we're going to have communion and we'll be thinking about these things in just a bit. So if you're participating up front, would you come forward? But let me pray for all of us and then we'll have communion. Father God, thank you so much for Jesus our Savior, the incredible deep well of love, the incredible deep well of righteousness and holiness that he offers to us, the incredible grace that is never-ending that has no bottom to it the outpouring and how many times you've poured out in our lives and we have not acknowledged sometimes we're not aware of it and sometimes we just don't want to respond to it you're an incredibly great gracious God and somehow God in the midst of all of it you have chosen us and you chosen you have chosen those you you want we don't know how that works but you do and that's all that matters Father, thank you for Paul, who was willing to go into different cultures and share the word different ways based on where the people were coming from. Thank you that he was a man who never gave up, that in spite of all opposition and pain, he continued to share. I thank you, Father, that he loved these people, even though he was angry with what they had done, that he shares graciously and help us to learn from that. So, Father, you are amazing. Your word is amazing. The examples are amazing. And now you're looking at all of us and saying, go out and do likewise. And so help us to be the servants of you and the stewards that we need to be to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.